This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Chip Lacker, and I'm privileged to serve as the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. And on behalf of uh, all of my colleagues, let me extend uh, a warm welcome to all of you and to say how delighted we are uh, to have you take part uh, in our concluding dinner this evening, which we hope um, serves as a capstone for at least what I thought was an invigorating day of debate and discussion on uh, the major sources of uh, risk in the international system. Before actually introducing Peter, um, and with your indulgence, uh, I'd like to make just three uh, brief observations. First, Stanford University is dedicated to the proposition uh, that seeking solutions to some of the world's most intractable problems is a central part of our mission as an institution, as is uh, educating the leaders of tomorrow. Uh, this dual mission, that is seeking solutions and educating leaders, is fitting for one of the world's great research universities. It also lies at the heart of the university's new capital campaign, the Stanford Challenge, uh, launched this past October. At the Freeman Spogli Institute, we have long been dedicated to a multidisciplinary approach to thinking through the most critical issues of our time because we know, as John Hennessy has observed, that the world and its problems do not come at us neatly in the form of disciplines. Rather, they come at us in the form of immensely complex challenges of one kind or another. Uh, we very much hope that you have seen at least some of the fruits of the multidisciplinary research activity uh, that goes on at the Institute and more broadly at Stanford. Second, the international initiative at Stanford, which the Freeman Spogli Institute coordinates and seeks to advance on behalf of the university, is expressly dedicated to new multidisciplinary research and teaching across all seven schools at Stanford on three cardinal issues of our time. Advancing the prospects for peace and security, improving governance in all forms and at all levels of society, uh, and advancing human well-being. Many of these themes have been at the heart of our deliberations today, and we thank you for your support and look forward to the next phase of our work together. For me, at least, uh, there is no higher and no more urgent priority. Third, as part of the overall Stanford campaign, we at the Freeman Spogli Institute are working hard to build an international studies community at Stanford, uh, and I mean this in a literal sense, by restoring, to those of you familiar with the Stanford campus, the entire Encina complex. When that renovation is complete, Encina Hall and the associated Encina Commons will provide much needed space for the growing activities of the Institute and for the collaborative international programs of the schools at Stanford, the School of Humanities and Sciences, the Business School, the Law School, the School of Medicine, School of Education, School of Engineering, and School of Earth Sciences. 
We plan to transform this beautiful 19th century building into truly 21st century space to engender the scholarly connections and creative exchange that spark and sustained cross-disciplinary work. We are profoundly grateful to our friends, <clears throat> many of whom are here with us tonight, for helping us render this vision real. We are eternally and profoundly grateful to Brad Freeman and to his business partner, Ron Spogli, currently the United States Ambassador to Italy, for their magnificent gift to the Institute and the University, which President Hennessy characterized correctly, in my view, as rocket fuel for the international initiative. I would also like to thank uh, Bert McMurtry, Chairman of the Stanford Board of Trustees, for his steady leadership, uh, his support, and his constant encouragement. Um, Bert has been with us most of the day. I think Didi has been with us all day. Uh, and we are delighted, as always, uh, to have their involvement, their insight, and their wise counsel. We come now to the eagerly awaited uh, moment of our conference, that is, remarks by Peter Bergen, uh, familiar to all as CNN's uh, terrorism analyst and respected the world over for his informed and insightful commentary on the leaders and the sources of global terror. Among many important international stories, Peter was responsible for the first television interview with Osama bin Laden, which aired in 1997. Peter has written two books, Holy War uh, Inc., Inside the Secret World of Bin Laden, and most recently, The Osama Bin Laden I Know, An Oral History of Al-Qaeda's Leader. This past summer, CNN aired a two-hour documentary called In the Footsteps of Bin Laden, uh, based on the book, uh, co-produced by Peter and narrated by Christian Amanpour. Uh, it's absolutely riveting if you haven't uh, seen it. Peter has written widely for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Foreign Affairs, Time, The Guardian, The Times of London, and many other publications. In an op-ed piece that ran in the New York Times this past October 26, he warned of the risks of an immediate withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq, invoking the French diplomat Talleyrand, who was alleged to have said, and if he didn't say it, he should have, it's so French. <laughs> this is worse than a crime. It's a blunder. Noting that al-Qaeda's strategic goal was to seize control of a state, or a piece of a state, in the Muslim world from which to wage future attacks on the West, Bergen emphasized the importance of preventing the realization of this jihadist dream in the ripe grounds of the Sunni majority areas of central and western Iraq. In addition to his work at CNN, Peter is the Schwartz Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation and an adjunct professor at the uh, NHTSA School of Advanced International Studies of the Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. He was educated at Oxford University, where he received his B.A. in Modern History from New College. We have a great deal to learn from the firsthand experience, uh, 
plural, experiences and insights of Peter Bergen, and we're simply delighted that he is able to join us tonight. Uh, Peter, let me start, as I always do, um, in welcoming people to this campus. Formally, uh, welcome to Stanford University, and we look forward to your words tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Bergen. Thank you very much. I know it's been a long day, so um, I'm going to keep my remarks uh, somewhat brief, and uh, we'll probably speak somewhat quickly to try and get a, a fair amount of material in. Secretary Perry uh, is probably the only uh, U.S. official uh, who has actually, Bin Laden has actually dedicated a poem to. I don't know if you're aware of this, sir. <laughs> but uh, when Bin Laden released his fatwa in 96, uh, basically for the first time declaring war against the United States, he included a small poem dedicated uh, to uh, William Perry, then the Secretary of Defense. I think this may have lost something in the translation, but it goes something like, Oh, William, our sons will come bearing swords uh, deep, you know, deeply drenched in blood. Anyway, so this is, and it goes on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you are probably the only public official uh, that's actually had a, a Bin Laden poem. Uh, but um, returning to the subject of uh, this evening's talk, successes and failures in the war on terrorism since 9-11, uh, to borrow a David Victor phrase from earlier today, I'm not sure if there's a Halloween talk or a Valentine's Day talk because uh, in some ways you could say the glass is both half empty and half full. But let me uh, start with the, uh, the negatives. Um, the kind of conventional wisdom right now is that Al-Qaeda, the organization, is dead and it's been replaced by an Al-Qaeda ideological movement. And there's some truth to that. Um, but we were not attacked by an ideological movement on 9-11. We were attacked by an organization and clearly there are a lot of people who don't like the United States right now, but the question is, will they get involved in an organization capable of attacking us? And what is the strength of Al-Qaeda today? And I would give you uh, some, some fairly bad news. In my view, the Al-Qaeda organization is back, not to the degree that it was uh, on September 11th, but certainly to the degree that they're able to carry out attacks thousands of miles from their home base on the Afghan-Pakistan border, uh, as they did on July 7th, 2005 in London. That attack was sort of misunderstood initially as sort of a homegrown attack. Uh, but when you look into it, two of the suicide attackers traveled to Pakistan, got bomb training there, made suicide video wills with Al-Qaeda's video production arm. And to me, it's an open and shut case that this was an Al-Qaeda operation. That, to me, looks a lot like the USS Cole attack, an attack, again, that took place thousands of miles from the base on the Afghan-Pakistan border, uh, took some planning, took some patience. Another indicator of strength of the al-Qaeda organization is that Abu Musab al-Zarqawi named his group al-Qaeda in Iraq in 2004, changed the name uh, from its previous name. When he was killed earlier this year, his successor again pledged oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden and may prove a little more pliable than Zarqawi was in terms of uh, taking orders from al-Qaeda central on the Afghan-Pakistan border. Another uh, indicator of strength of the al-Qaeda organization is what's going on in Afghanistan. Um, arguably, uh, well, the suicide attacks in Afghanistan have gone from one in the year 2001, the, the suicide attack that killed Akhmashar Massoud two days before 9-11, to something like 83 already this year. Um, and that exponentially rising graph is mirrored also by the exponentially rising graph of IED attacks. And I've been to Afghanistan four times in the past year, and having been something of a, an optimist about what was going on there, 
Three to five million refugees have returned. President Hamid Karzai, generally popular leader, did very well in the presidential election. Very large turnouts in the presidential and parliamentary election. But all those things are, are evaporating. Uh, reasons for optimism in Afghanistan uh, are, are, I think, evaporating quickly. And I think a fair-minded person looks at Afghanistan today and sees the summer of 2003 in Iraq, where the beginnings of a real insurgency, suicide attacks, making uh, NGOs pull out, making much of the country a no-go area for foreigners, etc. I think the outcomes in Afghanistan will be uh, better than they are in Iraq. Uh, but clearly there's, the situation there is deteriorating rapidly. Al-Qaeda is playing a role in that. When the Taliban agree on something and the U.S. government agree on something, it may well be true. And both U.S. officials in Afghanistan and the Taliban in its public statements emphasize the role that al-Qaeda is playing in the suicide campaigns in terms of giving advice, support, personnel, and money. Um, the largest Algerian terrorist group, uh, GSPC, just announced that it's part of al-Qaeda. Uh, people don't join organizations they think are going out of business. Gulbuddin Hekmatja, who's arguably one of the most important militia leaders uh, fighting the United States right now in Afghanistan, just announced on Al Jazeera that he's part of al-Qaeda. These peace agreements that we're seeing on the Afghan-Pakistan border, as you may know, there are seven tribal areas, and the Pakistani government is con conducting peace agreements with all these different tribal areas. This is good news for al-Qaeda. Uh, it may be good news for Musharraf to settle these problems, uh, but I don't think it's good news for us because these tribal territories, uh, the, the seven federally administered tribal areas, are places where the uh, foreign fighters, the Arab militants, have long had a presence, and this Pakistani army is pulling out of these areas. It's one less thing for them to worry about. So these are all indicators of al-Qaeda's resilience. Other negatives, of course, what's happening in Europe. Um, in, in 1945, there were a million Muslims living in Europe. Now there are 20 million. Uh, we all know that they're not being integrated, whether that's in Britain or France or Germany or Spain. Um, why is that a problem for us? I think it's a problem for three reasons. One, there could be an attack in Europe that would have a nasty knock-on effect uh, on us. For instance, if the London attackers had, instead of attacking the London transportation system, done a multiple attack, uh, multiple suicide attacks on the financial centre, the City of London, in, instead, that would have had a nasty effect on our markets. A radiological, radiological bomb attack in Europe, which I think is a very plausible scenario in the next five years, would have a nasty effect on global investor confidence. And of course, Europeans benefit from the visa waiver program, which means it's very easy for them to come to this country. And when we're attacked again, it's probably, ironically, we'll be attacked by our citizens of our closest ally, uh, Britain. Uh, Britons have conducted suicide operations in Tel Aviv in 2003. They conducted suicide operations in London in 2005. On two separate occasions, shortly after 9-11, you may remember Richard Reed, the so-called shoe, shoe, uh, shoe bomber. He attempted to bring down an American airliner. It would have been a suicide operation. The recent attack uh, plots that were broken up in London in August involved uh, uh, potential suicide operations against as many as American, air, American airliners. So if you were to sort of, sort of say today who is our most likely threat, somebody carrying a British passport, I think is a, is a very plausible. And in a minute I'll get into some other ideas about who, who, who might threaten us in the future. Another negative, I think, is the fact we haven't found bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawari. This is not a trivial matter. Uh, bin Laden has not receded into history. Um, I don't see him as an historical figure right yet, quite yet. Um, not only is uh, bin Laden, you know, there's a question of, question of justice for the victims of 9-11. Seven out of eight Americans believe it's very important to find him. 
but uh, bin Laden re has released something like 40 videotapes and audio tapes this year. Uh, sorry, not this year, since 9-11. And if you think about these videotapes and audio tapes, these are the most widely distributed political statements in history. Every time they're released, literally hundreds of millions of people see them, read, read, read about them, or hear them. And these tapes, um, they may seem very repetitive to us, uh, just the same old rhetoric, but to the people that, that are bin Laden's followers, these are akin to religious orders. And when bin Laden says, kill Westerners, kill Jews, kill Americans, this is taken seriously. And there are specific instructions on these tapes. I'll give you three examples. Uh, bin Laden has repeatedly called for attacks on members of the coalition in Iraq, which is one of the reasons we had attacks in Madrid and London. Bin Laden has repeatedly called for attacks on Iraqi and oil facilities, which is one of the reasons that we see a blizzard of those kinds of attacks. Ayman al-Zawari, his number two, uh, has called for attacks on President Musharraf, which is one of the reasons that President Musharraf uh, narrowly survived two very serious assassination attempts. Military dictatorships don't tend to have very good uh, succession plans, and so if Musharraf suddenly disappeared from the scene. That would not be a good thing. Another negative, in my view, is, uh, that we can track rather easily is, the, is terrorism figures. Donald Rumsfeld rather famously complained, you know, what, what is the metric uh, for knowing if we're winning or losing the, terrorism, uh, winning the war on terrorism? Well, I would submit that terrorism figures is a useful metric. And 19, 2003 saw the worst year for significant terrorist attacks, meaning attacks that kill more than one person. Uh, that was not since... 2003 saw the worst year for significant terrorist attacks since 1982. Those numbers then doubled in 2004 and they went off the charts in 2005. Most of those, uh, the reason the, that graph has gone like this is mostly because of suicide attacks in Iraq and of course Afghanistan. But there were no suicide attacks in Iraq, Iraq or Afghanistan uh, until very recently. Nor were there suicide attacks in Indonesia or in London or Madrid. All these things have happened in the post 9-11 world. You could argue that very few Americans have been killed since 9-11, and of course that's one of the great positives, which I will get to momentarily. But the fact is that there's been a, a large amount of terrorism around the world, particularly uh, since we invaded Iraq. On the matter of Iraq, um, you know, Iraq obviously was not a success. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, to pick up uh, on the question of what Talleyrand said, that it was worse than a crime, it was a blunder, in my view, the worst thing we could do from Iraq right now would be a complete withdrawal. The reason I say that is I, I think that would be to snatch a total catastrophe from the jaws of an enormous blunder. We basically have an F option or a D minus option. And the, the F option would be basically to hand over central and western Iraq to the jihadists. We've already run a videotape very similar to this in the past. We closed our embassy in Afghanistan in 1989. We basically said goodbye. And we paid no attention, broadly speaking, to the whole question of Afghanistan. We can't make the same mistake in Iraq. I don't think we will make the same mistake. Um, and I think another negative is anti-Americanism. Clearly, a lot more people don't like the United States. And it only requires a very small number of those people who don't like the United States to get engaged in violence, and we have a larger problem. So those are some of the negatives. On the positive side, we haven't been attacking the United States. I think there's, a, broadly speaking, a three or four reasons for that. One is, of course, the US government has made us somewhat safer. Um, I think the American Muslim community has completely rejected the Al-Qaeda ideology. Um, the American dream hasn't always worked, but it's worked very well with Muslims. Muslim families have uh, incomes up to $75,000 on average, which is much, more, much higher than the average American family. Uh, interestingly, they voted disproportionately large numbers for George W. Bush in the first election, uh, thinking that he, his, view, his view of Israel would be more akin to his father's. Uh, this is a, a very educated group of people 
um, uh, very well integrated into American society. There is an American dream, there's certainly no EU dream, there's no British dream, there's no French dream, there's no Spanish dream, there's no German dream. Um, and we are lucky uh, in a sense that we're insulated from some of the things that have happened in, in Europe. I think, you know, I would submit that countries built on immigration such as the United States and to some degree Canada and Australia are going to be somewhat insulated from the Al-Qaeda ideological virus uh, compared to Europe. That is not to say that we don't have problems. I don't think we have an American sleeper cells in this country. If, they, if there really were sleeper cells, um, they've had a lot of opportunities to do things. Effectively, it seems to me that they are so asleep they are effectively dead if they do exist at all. But uh, we do have some cases, uh, some serious cases. There's a case in California of a group of African Americans who got radicalized in jail, planning to attack synagogues and also U.S. military bases in Southern California. Uh, there was also the case recently in Ontario of a group of Canadians planning to attack federal buildings in Ontario. But these are exceptions that prove the rule. They are not kind of common. Think about what Eliza, Dame Eliza, I love this name, Dame Eliza Manningham Buller, who is the, the head of the British Intelligence Service, gave a, a very unusual public speech uh, recently in which she said that there are 30 plots in Britain and 1,600 people that they're actually looking at right now. Um, and, you know, talking about Britain, a country I grew up in, uh, interesting poll that was taken a year after London, uh, the London attacks of July 7, 2005. The question was asked to a, a group of British Muslims, a representative of the community, um, what's your view, were, were the London attacks justifiable? 25% said yes. And so you're looking at a very radical population uh, and luckily we don't have that. Um, two, three, two or three other positives. Um, Anti-Americanism is, I think, very, often very surface. Uh, a good example is what happened in, in Indonesia after the tsunami where U.S. military help in the tsunami turned around Ameri attitudes towards the United States and on terrorism. Another thing that has also happened in Indonesia, after all, the largest Muslim country in the world, um, is that the activities of the Al-Qaeda affiliate there have proven to be very, very damaging. The first attack in Bali killed 200 Western tourists. The, the attacks since, an attack on a JW Marriott, an attack on the Australian Embassy, and a second wave of attacks in Bali have killed mostly Indonesians. And uh, that has produced a real turnaround in opinions amongst uh, not only the Indonesian population, but also Indonesian clerics starting to say, you know, this is against Islam. That same process happened in Jordan with the three, at the three attacks on the American-owned hotels in Amman with spontaneous demonstrations against the terrorists. Abu Musab al-Zakawi's tribe actually disowned him after those attacks. Same thing happened in Saudi with uh, multiple attacks in Saudi Arabia since May of 2003. A lot of Saudis turning against the terrorists. Same thing happened when Jill Carroll was kidnapped. Uh, Muslim leaders from around the world protested her kidnapping. So I think that there have been some changes and they relate to the strategic weaknesses of these groups. We, talk, we often talk about our own weaknesses, but let's look at the weaknesses that these groups have. When I say this, these groups, I mean jihadist terrorists. First of all, they kill a lot of Muslim civilians. This is a double whammy because, A, you're not supposed to kill civilians, um, you know, according to the Quran, and you're also not supposed to kill fellow Muslims. In fact, arguably before 9-11, bin Laden had killed more Muslims than Americans because think about the embassy bombing attacks happened in Kenya and Tanzania, killed something like 200 Africans and 12 Americans. Kenya and Tanzania are very substantial Muslim populations. But these groups don't care about killing Muslim civilians because anybody who doesn't agree with them, uh, they see as uh, basically not sufficiently Islamic and therefore potentially worthy of death. 
So one of their strategic weaknesses is killing a lot of Muslim civilians. Another one, no positive vision. We know what bin Laden's against, but what is he really for? If bin Laden was here, he would say that he wants the restoration of the caliphate. Now, I'm not opposed to that at all, because when the caliphate actually existed, it was the Ottoman Empire, a relatively rational group of people who treated minorities quite well. But bin Laden means a caliphate that would mean Taliban-style theocracies from Indonesia to Morocco. And I think most Muslims don't want to live in that kind of society. There was a very interesting poll in Saudi Arabia in 2003. The question was asked, what do you think of bin Laden? 50% said, we have a favorable view. When the question was asked, do you want to live in a bin Laden-run state? Only 5% said yes. And I think that's a poll that should be taken in every Muslim country because I think it would have quite similar results. Another strategic problem they have is they don't have mass support. There will be no al-Qaeda clinics, there will be no al-Qaeda schools, there will be no al-Qaeda social welfare services. They will not turn themselves into political movement as Hezbollah has done through its program of social welfare services. I'm not saying that Hezbollah isn't a terrorist organization on top of that, but I don't anticipate a time that al-Qaeda or the jihadists will really enjoy true mass support. And the fourth and final strategic problem they have is they've made a world of enemies. Uh, this is not uh, really good, good strategy to always increase the number of enemies you have, but they've declared that basically any Muslim who doesn't agree with them is, is an apostate, all Middle Eastern governments need to be overthrown, all Shias are heretics, the Russians are bad, the Indians are bad, the West is bad, the media is bad, the NGOs are bad. There's very few people on the list uh, you can think of that they don't think are bad. And so one of Kennan's insights with the Cold War is that communism was a set of bad, bad ideas that would collapse over time of its own badness. And these are a set of bad ideas that will collapse over time of their own badness. The question is when, and what are we, how, can we, how can we either A, do no harm, or B, uh, help that process? Well, uh, the do no harm bit we haven't done particularly well because the Iraq war has basically really re-energized these people. Um, if I was to talk to you a year after 9-11, I would have said that al-Qaeda was extremely damaged. If you look at the pro-Bin Laden demonstrations immediately after 9-11. They were in cities like Karachi and Jakarta. There were 30,000 people, uh, which are, these are two of the biggest cities in the world. The same cities had you know, million-man marches coming out after, you know, in the run-up to, to the Iraq war. So unfortunately, the Iraq, I'm going to make some predictive statements, um, which is always dangerous, but let me try. The Iraq, there are basically four sets of problems. One is that we've created a safe haven for the jihadists. Two, that we've increased radicalization see that we're going to have a very nasty blowback from the war because we've already run this videotape also. The Afghan war, uh, the, the blowback from the Afghan war was the first trade center attack, the embassy attack, the coal, the 9-11. Why would the Iraq war blowback be any better? In fact, I think it could be much worse because think about the foreign fighters with bin Laden fighting the Soviets during the 80s. They were fighting one of the world's worst modern armies, uh, the all-conscript army of the Soviets. These guys, these foreign fighters in Iraq are fighting the best army in history. Um, and they are doing IED attacks and suicide operations and urban warfare that will be all very, very applicable to future acts of urban terrorism. Not all of the, I mean, CENTCOM would say a lot of these people check in, but very few check out. I'm sure that's true, but you don't need very many of them checking out uh, for it to be a problem. And when, they, when the war is over in Iraq, these people are not going to go home and open coffee shops and falafel stands. They're going to be the, the new shock troops of the international jihad. Another uh, prediction is that the, these groups will increase their attacks on Western economic targets, partly because they're ubiquitous and un, undefended, particularly Western-owned hotels. They're going to attack Jewish and Israeli targets. Uh, one of the things that I underestimated uh, was the, these are rabid anti-Semites, but they never attacked an Israeli or Jewish target uh, before 9-11. 
And I was always puzzled about that. But if you begin to believe, if you begin to understand them a bit, you realize that the attack on the Pentagon for them was really an attack on Israeli target as much as an American target. These guys believe their own propaganda. They think that the, you know, we are really run by this sort of Zionist occupation government, which is a very similar view to how the right-wing militias see this country as well. And so now that they've done the attack on the United States, we've seen a blizzard of attack on Jewish and Israeli targets, uh, synagogues in Casablanca and Tunisia, uh, in Istanbul, uh, attack on an Israeli-owned hotel in Kenya. The kinds of attacks that they're fully capable of, and I, these are not chicken little scenarios that I anticipate in the next five years, are... Uh, a radiological bomb and attack in a European city. That, I think, is very plausible. Uh, it's almost surprising it hasn't happened. I, I don't anticipate it happening here, but as I indicated, I think it would... Uh, it, in a lot of people's minds who are not as sophisticated as this audience, these guys had gone nuclear, um, and it would be a 9-11-style kind of feeling. Uh, and I think that's a plausible scenario. We just had a case in Britain of somebody pleading to a dirty bomb uh, plot, uh, this is something that's well within their capabilities. If you look at the guys, by the way, the, the terrorists who attacked the West are not Madrasa graduates. Um, if you look at the five, uh, five of the key anti-Western terrorist attacks of the last decade or so, the first Trade Center attack, the embassy attack, the Bali attack, the London attack, 9-11, you look at who, who are doing these attacks, it turns out that 54% um, of them attended college, uh, two of them had doctorates. Mohammed Atta, of course, had a doctorate, ironically enough, in urban preservation. Spoke four languages. He, these are people, they, these are the, we're not being attacked by the dispossessed, we're being attacked by the empowered. And so the reason that's relevant to this radiological bomb discussion is that these are exactly the sort of people who can get this together. Um, these are people, when you look at their, what is the subject they most often do? They most often do engineering. Um, and the next, next subject down is medicine. And this has been true for a long time. When Jill Keppel looked at the people who tried to kill Sadat in, uh, in, in 1981, uh, he found a very similar profile. So this is a, quite a sophisticated group of people. A radiological bomb is within that, quite, quite a plausible scenario. Another plausible scenario is bringing down a commercial passenger jet with a rocket-propelled grenade or a surface-to-air missile. This would have a very nasty effect on commercial aviation and tourism. It doesn't matter where it happens, because once you've demonstrated it can happen, uh, that will be a fairly large demonstration effect. They've tried to do this before in Mombasa and Kenya. They tried to bring down an Israeli passenger jet with a rocket-propelled grenade. It was a fairly close-run thing. So those are two, uh, two scenarios that I think are plausible. Who might attack us in the next wave of attacks? I mentioned British citizens of Pakistani descent, European militants, uh, Richard Reid, after all, the so-called shoe bomber, was a Jamaican Brit who had converted to Islam. I'm very interested in the case of Muriel de Gork, who's a female Belgian baker's assistant, age 38, who conducted a suicide attack along with her husband in Iraq on November 9, 2005. How do you profile for a 38-year-old female Belgian? The answer is you don't. So uh, that's the sort of person. And then, of course, the Iraqi veterans. I want to leave you, since the evening is getting uh, long, I just wanted to leave you with one final thought, skipping, which is, what were the underlying causes of 9-11? I think we know what happened on 9-11. We have a pretty good sense. But I'm going to submit to you the following uh, list in sort of ascending order of importance. And when I, when I outline this list, I want you to think about what has actually changed since 9-11. Um, are we safer? Uh, are we less safe? And here are the, here are the, nine, the nine items. Radicalization caused by the Afghan Jihad. Obviously, this had an, an important role in 9-11. And I would substitute Afghanistan, I would say, radicalization caused by the Iraq War. A particular reading of Islamic texts would be another. 
you know, there are many discussions about what is, you know, root causes of terrorism, and it's perhaps very on PC to point out that, that the people involved in this believe that they're fighting for Islam. They, you know, they, they, for them, this is not a political thing. This is about fighting for a religion, and unfortunately, there is enough ammunition in the Quran to basically justify offensive jihads against the infidels. There are quite a lot of verses that justify this. Bin Laden uh, is able to quote those verses. The Quran is not a document. The Quran is the word of God. And so Bin Laden has a fair amount of ammunition he can use in that document uh, in his holy war. Decline and stagnation of the Middle East. Um, you know, Bernard Lewis was the first person, I think, to sort of basically imply that one of the reasons this terrorism phenomenon is coming out of the Middle East is because decline and stagnation. He has an interesting ally, which is Bin Laden. Bin Laden talks about the humiliation we've been feeling for 80 years. For Bin Laden, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 is a lot like the Treaty of Versailles for Hitler something that must be avenged and reversed. And when bin Laden, immediately after 9-11, came out with a videotape, he talked about the 80 years of humiliation we're feeling. Uh, and I would submit that uh, some of that humiliation, that narrative is, is kind of confirmed by the Iraq war. The spread of communications technology. Without that, bin Laden would just be an angry guy in one country. He would be like the Mahdi in Sudan attacking the British. But it's not a, it's interesting coincidence, bin Laden's declaration of war against the United States in which he referenced the Secretary of Defense, uh, William Perry, uh, came about the same year that Al Jazeera was born in 1996. And I'm not saying that Al Jazeera was involved, uh, I have a fairly sanguine view about Al Jazeera. But the spread of communication technology has been very useful for bin Laden. Authoritarian governments in the Middle East, you know, it's not an accident that so many people in these groups are either Saudis or Egyptians. That doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. Alienation of Muslim immigrants in the West. The, the, the pilots on 9-11 got radicalized in Hamburg. Uh, the tactics of Osama bin Laden proved to be, uh, the tactics of Osama bin Laden proved to be pretty fruitful. Uh, we were caught up in a, a civil war in the Islamic world. We were sort of collateral damage in somebody else's civil war, as Michael Duran put it in, in foreign affairs. That civil war is going on, continues. Uh, and uh, this, the war between people like, who want Taliban-style regimes around the, around the Muslim world and people who don't. Uh, and for people who do want that Taliban-style regimes, they see attacking us, the far enemy, as a way of destabilizing their, uh, the near-enemy governments that they don't like. And finally, 11 was a strategic vision of bin Laden. He overreached. Um, he believed his own propaganda. He thought we were a paper tiger. He thought that uh, we would one blow against us, we'd pull out of the Middle East. He was criticized very heavily within Al-Qaeda for that decision, interestingly. Um, so I'm going to leave you with those thoughts because I think time has run out. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.